You're listening to a podcast of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. We exist to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people whole in Him. We'll kind of be all over the place this morning, but we're going to be in John 1 and also read a section from John 14. This is where I'd like you to start this morning. Let's read, and then I will pray, and by God's grace, we'll preach. John 1, 1 through 5, this is God's Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John 14, 8 through 11. Philip said to Matthew, I'm sorry, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. We ask now that the preaching of your word would shine the light of Christ into our hearts, and that we'd be changed by it. I ask for your power. I ask that you would do the work here, that you would convict us, encourage us, and give us joy in knowing and loving you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, I grew up in kind of a small town, a little bit outside of, of a small town called Almer, Ontario. It's in Canada. Uh, in the summers, I, I played uh, some soccer, and I played baseball in the local rec leagues. And uh, I remember that these rec leagues combined many different small cities, or uh, maybe the countryside between those two. And what that meant is that who was on the team and, and whoever would be on the teams, I knew some of them from school, but some of them I didn't know from school. Some of them were from different schools around the area, and some were from schools in town. And thus, a lot of times, I had my own opinions about other people that I didn't know. You might know something like this. And sometimes when those players aren't on your team, and when you hear things about those players, and then when you lose to them in baseball, um, and when you simply just watch them from a distance, you begin to put together some idea of what these people must be like. You have some sort of idea. This was true of one particular kid that I didn't like. Let's just call him Mortimer. It's not his real name. Just trying to keep it safe here. Uh, I didn't know him at the time. I didn't know of him, and I didn't want to know him. I I watched him play baseball. He had one of those bitter faces when he got up to bat. He didn't seem like that nice of a guy. I assumed that he was not a nice person. I assumed that he was a, a lesser human being and that I had the right to look down on him in some way. I would never have said these things out loud. But these are the kind of things that I said, I thought. But every one of my interactions with him was from afar. I had constructed some sort of vision of this person from observation, from what I'd seen him do, and from one other kid on my team told me about this guy. And so I imagined him in my own head as to be someone who just wasn't that great of a person, kind of that guy that got up to bat with a snarl on his face. And it wasn't until 
a guy on my team actually spoke admiring, admiringly about Mortimer that I even gave this a second consideration. Lo and behold, next summer, guess who was on my team? Mortimer. Uh, the first time I began to even take any consideration of him was the first day of practice when he first opened his mouth to speak, to say something. Uh, I heard his words, I started talking to him, I began to get to know him, and it turned out to be a really great guy. He just had a really tough face when he went up to bat, you know? He's a good baseball player, and he became kind of a good friend along the times. He's kind of funny and a good baseball player, but I had never taken the time to get to know him, let alone listen to any of his words at all. We didn't have any sort of conversations whatsoever. Some of you have maybe experienced something like this and how you kind of have your chi a chip on your shoulder about other people. It happens a lot in like high school and college, especially between guys and girls, right? I think it mainly happens with the girls. I think the guys just like all the girls. But like the girls think about a certain way about this or that guy. They've never actually met them. They kind of have a chip on their shoulder. But then he ends up sitting next to them in class and he actually knows how to carry out a conversation. He's actually kind of funny and charming and considerate. And all of a sudden, you know what happens. They become a little bit closer, a little closer. Maybe they start dating. My point in all this is that sometimes you don't actually know a person unless you get to know them and hear their words and hear from them who they actually are. Everything changes when you hear someone speak, when you interact with them. How can you possibly get to know someone simply by observation or hearing what other people have to say about that person? Oftentimes, our own view of someone can be skewed just because we've had a certain thing in our mind about what they're like, or we've listened to one or another person about what this person is like. I think this is just what happens to us when we think that we can know God based on observation, based on what other people have to say about God, based on what this person and that person is doing and what God must be like in general, because everyone has a general conception, even the church has a general conception of who God is. We can think that we know about him, what other people say about him, how he works, what he's like, the general perception of most people. But how do you ever think you will get to know him without listening to what he has to say? All of us would think it crazy if we were supposed to know someone, especially in some sort of intimate relationship, and we never listened to their words, or we never got to know them through listening and going back and forth. Today, I want to talk about the Bible as a means of God's grace. If you want to hear all of today's sermons summed up in one sentence, here it is. Read, memorize, and meditate on the Bible. For from it, you will know God. I'll say it again. Read, memorize, and meditate on the Bible. For from it, you will know God. This is based on a theological truth. That, that trustingly, taking in the Bible is a main channel of grace wherein you and I come to know Jesus Christ and therefore it is, the primary way, it is a primary way in which we glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Uh, I believe that the Bible teaches that the Bible is actually a means to an end. Now follow me for you're like, uh, what are you saying exactly? Like... You can use the Bible for the end that you want it to. Like a lot of people throughout history have used different passages, right? 
to make it say this or that or justify some awful wickedness in their actions. That's certainly not what I'm talking about here. In the chief, if the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, we must believe that the chief end of man is not merely to read the Bible. If the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, the Bible must somehow fit in as a way to accomplish the goal of glorifying God and enjoying him. That means that you and I need to consider what's going on and how to understand what we're doing when we're reading the Bible and how it fits into God's plan to glorify him and for us to rejoice or to find joy in him. My main goal here is to show you that the Bible shows us or gives us God. Now, I want you to hear that again. Uh, my, my goal here is that the Bible shows us or gives us God. It is the means of knowing him and therefore the means to growing us closer to him and more dependent on him and more worshipful as a, create, as a creature to our creator. Therefore, I'm saying that Taking in the Bible, and you hear that weird way of saying it? I don't just keep saying reading the Bible. Taking in the Bible, that's important. Taking in the Bible in a way that trusts it to be true and authoritative will bring glory to God and joy to us because through it we know Him. It's an important point because it seems like uh, seems like knowing him is exactly what Paul's overwhelming pursuit is. Remember last week in Philippians 3, we talked about what is his aim. He's willing to give up all of his righteousness, all the things that he's done in order that he might gain Christ, that he would know him. What I want us to start doing here is then beginning the, this, this premise to understand what does it mean then for us to look to the Bible and to try to understand how we're glorifying God and how it is changing us so that we're not simply fulfilling our time in, checking the box, going back to him taking in the Bible. When we look at these passages, specifically these ones that we kind of mentioned last week, and I'll, I'll mention them again, that talk about our chief end being the glory of God and us enjoying him forever, they kind of develop a pattern. This is what I mean. They show us and they highlight one of three things usually. Faith in God, worship to God, or doing life properly before God. That'd be like obedience or all that we do. One theologian says we glorify God through our faith, our worship, and all that we do. Listen to Psalm 86.9. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. What's he saying here? It seems that the worship of God, specifically the worship of all these different nations now, that worship brings him glory. Listen to 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We all know this verse, right? But do you remember the context of what he's talking about? This is the passage about eating meat offered to idols and considering how to best serve one another. And then if we are going to eat, that we should do so with thanksgiving. In other words, living in a way that recognizes God, thanks him for his good gifts, and loves our neighbor. These things glorify God, the way that we act, whatever we do. Listen to Isaiah 60, 21. Your people shall be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. God's people being righteous, growing as God's obedient creation, brings him glory. 
We could talk about God's great glory in saving sinners from Romans 11. It's an amazing passage when we see that both Jews and Gentiles in God's design are those who are saved through the person and work of Jesus Christ. It brings glory to God. We could talk about 1 Corinthians 6, 15 through 20, where we realize that when we act as purchased, joined members of Christ, we glorify Him. Each of these instances reflect faith in God, or worship to God, or doing life properly before God. But there's a common basis in all these different things, right? The knowing of God. You must actually know Him in order to trust Him. You must know Him in order to worship Him. You must know Him in order to actually do life according to His rules. I'm saying that knowing God and glorifying God are not separate things. I know I'm talking a lot, but just I want you to think about that for a moment. Knowing God and glorifying God are not two separate things. In fact, they're necessarily part and parcel of the one thing that God requires from his people. Knowing God brings one to properly live, respond, and worship. Knowing God brings one to glorify God. This ought to be self-explanatory, I get that, but I simply want to state it out loud. You cannot accidentally glorify God. We get that, right? You can't just like stumble upon it, that somehow God is pleased with the, the way that you've acted in your life. And you cannot know him on your own terms. We know this from Romans 1, right? Let me just read a section from Romans 1 for you. Romans 1, 18 through 25. He says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Right? They can see it all around them. It's plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, attributes main, namely his eternal power, and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst, among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Our bent is not to accidentally fall into worship to God. <laughs> it shows us over and over again. We probably know the truth of our own hearts. What we worship is ourselves. What we worship is all the stuff, all the good gifts that God has given to us without ever acknowledging all that these things are. Our bent is to deny him and exchange the truth of the lie that somehow we're supposed to worship the creature instead of the creator. From the time that Adam and Eve disobeyed, we have been plagued by a desire to know and worship ourselves. To rebel against God and go our own way, making ourselves the gods, if you will. Uh, right before we come to God's plan of judgment in the flood, Noah, right? He tells us a little bit about the world. I want you to listen to this. Genesis 6, 5 says it this way. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth 
and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Not a good situation. Let's fast forward a little bit. In Judges, we watch Israel slip back into their natural position, and you hear that awful refrain, right? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Even later in Israel's history, we hear Jeremiah, the prophet, called out again, saying, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? I mean, before we even get to Paul, and he's the great teller of us of depravity and the sinfulness of man, but before we ever get there, we know it's true. We see it all over the pages of the Old Testament. But in case we don't understand it, Paul makes it abundantly clear in Romans 5.12. He says this, sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Man does not accidentally glorify God. Can, can we agree on this, right? We understand. So, what must happen for man to glorify God? Well, we at least understand that he must know God. He has to know about him and to understand who he is. But how does he do this if he's separated from him by sin? Genesis 6 tells us that God is going to blot out mankind, we get this little statement in verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Because Noah was such a great guy. Oh, sorry, that's not in the text. What's going on here? This is not that he looked down and was like, is anybody good? Oh, that guy's good. This is a moment where we see in God's grace an act of election and showing us through this way this person will know God, will trust Him and obey. If you go five verses later, God speaks to Noah, reveals Himself, and speaks words of salvation to Noah. He tells him to build an ark. He's telling him exactly what he's supposed to do. It's, it's grace to him. He enters into his place and tells him about salvation, tells him to build an ark. God's gracious revelation called Noah to receive the kindness of knowing God through the commitment found in the establishment of the covenant that he made with God. He is coming to Noah and giving to him himself in relationship. In other words, he's saying, hey, know me. I'm telling you who I am. I'm showing you how to interact with me. I'm telling you what salvation is. Know me. In short, because God spoke, Noah knows God. Fast forward a little bit. Noah fails to be the true second Adam. You remember what happens. He plants a vineyard, gets drunk. His son is despicable, which leads to a whole generations of people who rise up against God. They try to build a tower that has its, its top way up in the skies. God comes down. He disperses them in judgment, speak different language, and now the place is set. Everyone's trying to, again, do what's right in their own eyes all over the earth. And we get to Genesis 12. If you know what Genesis 12 is, the person of Abram. Abram is a person who God comes to, a person who God speaks to, a person that receives the promises and the covenant of God in a time where there is nothing happening on the earth that pleases him. In other words, it is his selecting work again to call Abraham, or Abram at the time, to this salvation. He makes his covenant with him. Therefore, we see that because God's gracious actions, because God has acted and reached out to Abram, Abram now knows God. Absolutely, there's faith involved here. I'm, just trying to, I'm trying to develop a pattern here that you're seeing what's going on. Abram knows God. After him, Isaac knows God. After him, Jacob knows God, right? We, we, we know how this goes. How about Moses? 
How about God's work to bring him to the burning bush in Exodus 3? How about God's work to speak to Israel through Moses so that they might eventually understand God by, giving, by receiving his law, his commandments, his gracious statutes that told him them of the great character of God and his covenant love for his people. This is how Israel knew God, by following and understanding his word. I ask you, how did each and every one of those people end up knowing God? Did they stumble across it? Were they discovering it? Were they observing nature? Did they accidentally know God? Did they accidentally glorify him? No, God spoke to them. He revealed himself to them. He communicated himself to them. And as the Old Testament moves along, God continues to speak or communicate to his people. And instead of going through all the whole Old Testament, let me just read for you Hebrews 1.1. The writer says, Long ago, at many times, at many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's what we have here, right? The whole Old Testament showing us that God is speaking. How about Peter? He, he chimes in on this as well. Peter says, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, God has been revealing himself to his people that they might know him since the very beginning. He has consistently communicated to his people, showing them who he is, that they might know him, and therefore, that they might glorify and find joy in him. But something has happened in history that has forever changed the way that national Israel, and therefore all peoples, worship God. No longer do we worship God according to temple worship, keeping the ceremonial law. Doubtless, some of you probably even enjoyed bacon this morning, right? Um, something has happened that shows us God in a whole new light. Not a different God. He has not changed. That's not what I'm saying here. More like now we see him clearer in a more tangible way. Allow me to read an excerpt from John 1 again. You can go there if you want to. This is a Christian church, so you kind of know where I'm going with all this, I think. This is John describing Jesus of Nazareth, or who he truly was. John 1, 1 through 5 again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Seems like John isn't just talking about speech when he's referring to a word here. He's talking about a person. He is saying that this person, it seems as though this word was with God, this word was God. This is a significant person. Now skip ahead, John 1, 14 through 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God 
who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Catch that last word? He has made him known. Well, John's, uh, John's talking about Jesus Christ. <laughs> That's who he's talking about, Jesus of Nazareth, the God-man, the one from Nazareth who lived, was crucified, who rose from the grave and who ascended to the Father's side. He is the one who showed us the glory of the Father. He has made God known. How about Colossians 1? I told you I'd be all over the place. You know this passage too, Colossians, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Sounds a lot like glory and getting all the credit. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Amen. So I ask you, how do you know God? Since what has happened in history, it is through Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, don't see it yet? Let me go one more place. I'll finish up where I started. Go back to Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. You can listen again. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. I understand that. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Not just through his son, by his son, bring him, who he appointed, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the power, I'm sorry, by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. In other words, Jesus Christ has shown us the Father. He has shown us God. Jesus has shown us God unlike the world had ever seen him before. He spoke by the prophets, but now he speaks to us in Jesus Christ, the full expression of God and his grace to save sinners. So how do we glorify God and enjoy him forever? We must know Christ. We can't just read the first half of our Bible as though Jesus doesn't exist. We must know Christ. It is through him that we know the Father. This is why Paul says that he is willing to give up all his incredible religious good works and count them as rubbish in order that he would gain the surpassing worth of knowing Christ because he understands what that means. So how do we know Christ? This is the right question for us. This is where we are today. How do we know Christ? Is it through hearing others speak about him? Well, certainly, that's still true, the preaching of the word. But even that is coming from something else. Let you know, I have nothing original to say, guys. It all comes from God's word. Hopefully I will always be faithful to that task because Chris's advice is just not going to get you very far. Hopefully any preacher that you listen to goes back to this text, 
to hear it speak to us because it is the only thing that is the truth and the authority. No, it's not through just hearing someone or in a sense kind of like me having my own thoughts about Mortimer, about the type of person that he was. I needed to go talk and hear him speak and interact with this person. We know Christ by hearing him and those who knew him through his word, through the Bible. Listen to Hebrews again. There's just a few more lines down in chapter 2. He says this, Therefore, we must pay, close, mu- pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, that's Jesus, and it was attested to us by those who heard, all the witnesses, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. I mean, this message of salvation is not just folklore or legend. The writer here tells them to pay close attention to what they have heard, the message, the central idea of the gospel. This is talking about the message that Jesus Christ was the only one who had come to actually save us from our sins. The one that the whole sacrificial system pointed to. He had come. And not only was he what the sacrificial system pointed to, but all the kings and the prophets pointed to as well. In him, in this person, in Jesus, is our yes and amen to all the promises of God. The writer here tells them to pay close attention to what they have heard. This is talking about the message of Christ. This message was delivered by angels. It's declared by the Lord himself when he came. It was then attested by those who are witnesses and then wrote it down. And then finally, he tells us here by signs and wonders and all kinds of gifts that he has given through his Holy Spirit. What I want you to notice here is that this message of salvation through Jesus Christ was well known. It's well attested to. It was written down by trustworthy witnesses. And here we are told to pay close attention to this testimony if we're to understand at all what God has done in Christ Jesus. Think about how Luke said this in his opening paragraph in the Gospel of Luke. I love this. Luke 1, 1 through 4 says this, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. He's bringing us another right telling of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the events that surround us, surround it so that we might know him. This message of Christ crucified had come to them through the word of faithful witnesses, eyewitnesses seeing what happened. Uh, and it wasn't because they'd somehow sought around, sat around and thought about their most inward thoughts about who Jesus might be. No, it was through the reality that was taught to them through Jesus and then his eyewitnesses that told them exactly who he was. Our channel of blessing to know God in Jesus Christ is through the word of God. It is through the Bible. He's spoken through prophets for many years, but now he has spoken to us by his perfect son, Jesus Christ. Now, this only isn't now, I just convinced you to read the New Testament a lot, right? But it's not only the New Testament. 
Think about how Jesus talks about this in Luke 24. He talks about this when he's going on the road to Emmaus. Remember this? And he's talking to them and he's hearing their unbelief and their disappointment. And this is what the author says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. They didn't have the New Testament yet. He went back to the Old Testament and he said, let me show you how all this is about me. Let me show you all these different places that are concerning me. Jesus is right there. He could have just told them, hey, just listen to me. I'm Jesus and I can tell you. I mean, I'm literally the son of God. Let me just show you this stuff. Instead, he goes back to the text to show them in the word of God that it spoke of him. Where did Jesus go when he wanted to show them salvation through Christ? He went to the Bible. Where do we think we're going to go, guys? Do we think we have a better telling of it? Our take on it somehow? The Bible shows us God in Christ Jesus. This is obviously not a cursory or obligatory read of the Old Testament. Like Jesus is getting and understanding it and showing us what this is all about so that he might know God. And so that these guys he's walking along the way with, that they might know God and that it's him, that it's Jesus, that he's the fullest expression. This is a deep searching and discovering God through the text of Scripture and showing us that it is through this medium, his word, the Bible, that we know God. I'm trying to show us that take, taking in the Bible, not just reading, hear me again, right? Taking in the Bible should never be some sort of passive activity, but one that is actively aimed at knowing and getting God. Do you get that? That's what we talked about last week. That was Paul's whole aim. He wanted to gain Christ. He wanted to know Christ. That's what this whole endeavor is about. Stop with the check marks, right? I get it. I'm glad, and I'm glad that many of you have good reading plans. That's what we should be doing. It's a good thing. But our goal is to know God, not check a box. I recognize, because I have this exact same struggle, and you'll hear it as it comes out here. But with that being said, I want to give you some practical applications. If this is true, if the Bible says that glorifying God comes through our faith, through our worship of God, and through obedient actions toward Him, we should start seeking to do that, right? If the Bible shows that no one can do these things, and they lest they know God on His terms, then we should know God on His terms, right? If the Bible shows us that Jesus Christ has properly proclaimed God on His terms, then we should listen to Jesus Christ. And if the best possible way for you and me to know Jesus Christ is through the written word, man, guys, we should be taking in the written word. How? I'll give you three ways. It's going to be real mysterious. I'll bet you can guess all of them already. I've already said them. My sermon, in a sentence, was read, memorize, and meditate on the Bible, for from it you will know God. Now, I want to answer another question. Why in the world have I spent so much time leading up to this moment? I spent all last week and most of today's sermon already showing us and getting us to this point. I could have just simply said something like, guys, read your Bible, memorize it, and meditate on it. Let's, let's pray and be done. Some of you might be happy about that. Um, that would be really quick and efficient, right? But I have a sneaking suspicion that you're like me in that if you were told to do that, you could do that. 
No problem. I want to say something here. Consider this for a moment. To read the Bible, to memorize the Bible, to meditate on the Bible is no Christian activity in and of itself. I'll say, what, Chris? I'll say it again. I, I said it clearly. To read the Bible, to memorize the Bible, to meditate on the Bible is no Christian activity in and of itself. If you guys all weren't here and I had a, a, a full auditorium of unbelieving people, maybe they're just from the homeowner association down the road and they're going to meet in here this morning, and I could give them some home, homework. These are three things you need to do. Maybe even in a college class. You need to read a couple chapters in the Bible. You need to memorize these two verses. And then I want you to think about the things that you read. I want you to meditate on this. What happens? Does anything happen? Wait, let me ask another question. Could they do it? Of course they could. They could read the Bible. They could meditate on it. They could memorize a few verses. Not a problem. Does, does, that, does that bother anybody in here? Do you recognize that's like, whoa, do you mean that it can work for some people and not work for other people? Well, let me ask a better question, I think. Is it possible that sometimes you and I don't think, take time to think about the fact that these Christian disciplines, these means of grace can be done in an unbelieving way, in a way that does not glorify God, in a way that does not bring us closer to Him? Is it possible that we think about them as like a magic ceremony, that if we do this thing and sit down for 20 minutes and do this thing and get through it, or we, we think about it a little bit and then we memorize a few words and we try to get through it, that that will bring God glory, just if I do it, just if I do it. Is it possible this is the way that we think that somehow God will be automatically glorified through these disciplines? Guys, I'm just being honest because this has been the wrestling of my own heart for many years a waffling between a genuine love and communion with Christ to know Him and just like getting the things done I need to get done. I presume that I'm not the only one that does this. I really do want to glorify God. I do. I love Him. I'm thankful for what He has called me from, my own sin and saved me. But sometimes I'm not aiming at glorifying or knowing or following, finding myself in Him, but rather getting it done because I know it's the right thing. I don't question your motives because I, I know my own. I want to please him. But I never think sometime about the connection between the doing of that thing and how in the world it would possibly glorify God. And so I spent all this time getting us to this point because I want you to pursue knowing God, not pursuing spiritual disciplines. I think sometimes we believe that we're more pious and we're more holy because we really go after the spiritual disciplines. And we feel better when we do and more and more and more of those spiritual disciplines because we have something to show for our lives and our spiritual lives, really working on it. I just want to ask you to consider pursuing God. That's what we're after here. So I could have just stood up here and said, hey, memorize the Bible, read the Bible, and meditate on it. That's not what I'm calling you to do only. I do want you to do those things, by the way. That's the, kind of the point here. But hear this now. I don't want your greatest efforts, your ultimate efforts to be in self-control. We are not ascetics. I want them to be in the hot pursuit of knowing your creator, to love him with your whole heart, soul, and mind, which of course will require self-control, by, by the way, but it is not subservient to knowing. It is subservient to knowing God. That is our ultimate end, that we would know, enjoy Him, and glorify Him. So now, 
when I apply these things, think of what I said from the very beginning. I believe that the Bible teaches us that the Bible is a means to an end. It's getting us somewhere. It is a way for us to know God through Christ and to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. It instructs us about who He is and who we should be and how we are to live in light of Him. It corrects us in our sin and wickedness and draws us back so that we might know Him and the grace that is poured out in Jesus Christ. It is given to us that we might know and glorify Him in faith, in worship, and in all that we do. So, number one, you should read your Bible. You should read your Bible. Uh, it's a huge book. It's an incredible book. It's a collection of, that tells the grand story of God's plan of redemption. And as such, it takes time and discipline to read. I don't know how many of you are just like regular readers, like, and some of you just are voracious readers. You love to get through books. Or if maybe you're like me, I just don't like to read that much. It's really hard. It takes time and work. I know it's hard to believe as a pastor. I don't get through as many things I'd want to. Jordan and I talk about this all the time. Because some guys can plow through 80 books in a year, and I just cry, you know? <laughs> I'm like, I'm, 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 I'm worthless at this job. It is hard to read and to understand and to work at it. But my word, is it worth it? It is the way that we know God. So I would call you to read your Bible, to understand it, to cross it over and understand the big swath of what God is doing, to understand the richest of who this God is. It will take time to understand it. It will take time for you to look up words that you don't understand. That's okay. That's good. Do this, that you might know God. It takes a questioning disposition, a learner's attitude. Don't put it down because you're just frustrated you don't understand it. Ask the questions. By the way, ask your brothers and sisters too. You're in community groups. Ask them, hey, I was reading this passage. I don't understand it. Could you help me? Man, that would be doing one of our spiritual good guys, right? Read the Bible. Read both long sections and also study short, deep sections. You need to know the large contours of the story and make the connections between books of the Bible, but you also need to drill down and understand exactly what Peter's talking about when he talks about suffering, because it's going to impact you. If we are to know God, then, we must read his word. So, for us desiring to glorify God and enjoy him forever, read the Bible that you might know him. Application number two, meditate on God's word. I think uh, there may be more commands in the scriptures actually about meditating, meditating on the scriptures than there are about reading the scriptures. It is everywhere. Probably the one that comes to my mind so often and convicts me is Psalm 1. You probably already know it. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the sea of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. It's a constant thing for this guy. So let me ask you, what are your thoughts throughout the day? From when you wake up, or maybe even when you're awake in the night, to when you go to sleep again. We're doing a lot of different things today, right? Probably different work, a little this, a little that, all kinds of stuff. When we're in the midst of that, what are we thinking about? Rightly, we're probably thinking about some of the tasks that we have to do. But what's the stuff that fills in all the cracks? What dominates your heart and mind? What are you thinking on regularly? And let me ask, do you purposely set aside any time 
to think about what God says in his word about himself. This is exactly what he calls us to do. I just want to ask you this. A lot of you probably drive a car, I assume, around here. Um, Sometimes you drive to the store, which is 20 minutes, or maybe drive home from work, which is 40 minutes. And what are you doing during that time? Often, if you're like me, you maybe listen to a podcast, uh, maybe you listen to music, uh, maybe you're on the phone. All those are good things. All those are good things. I mean that. I would encourage you to take one of those slots or two of those slots per day and think on a passage of Scripture and think on who God is. Maybe it's praying and, 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 think, and talking back and forth with Him, considering, meditating on Scripture. I think, uh, I think, I kind of think of meditation like um, cooking versus eating raw ingredients. What I mean is some of you have probably watched the documentary Cooked uh, by Michael Pollan. Uh, he tells us the story of how fire separates uh, us from animals in that we use it to cook. And it takes raw food that makes it much more easily digestible for us. It's far easier so that we don't waste so many calories chewing and chewing and getting and chewing and chewing and chewing, but rather being able to, bear, to get it down to something that's far better, taking that raw food and getting good nutritional value by cooking it, making it more digestible. Meditation, in a sense then, I just thought, I'm, I'm thinking through this, I thought about this all week, like, is this a good analogy? But I think meditation is like taking that raw food, these ingredients, that has good nutritional content, and cooks it down, making it more savory, enjoyable, and far easier to digest and benefit from as nutritious. Rushing through, and eating the ingredients, it will certainly bring you some physical good. It will. It'll help you but nothing like when food is supposed to be taken care of and cooked properly. Savory, pleasurable, digestible for far more nutrition for strengthening our body. So again, I'd ask you, how are you taking your time to meditate on God's word? I would encourage each of you to think on God's law, to consider who he is, to know him better through crossing our questions and understandings from one passage to another. But this leads to my final application. Number three, memorize scripture. I just, I, I just lost some of you, I know that. But, but I, I'm, I'm calling you to memorize scripture. Many of you haven't done it for years. Maybe you're like me, you did a lot maybe when you were a kid and growing up in Sunday school. Maybe even through high school you had to do some of that. But after a certain time point, you really haven't spent a lot of time memorizing the Bible. I'm calling us to memorize scripture. And can I encourage you in the flow of what we've already been talking about here, I always thought that memorizing scripture was hiding God's word in my heart, which it is, but I thought about it as kind of like a big reservoir. I need to like put all these different Bible verses in there and make sure I get a lot in there so that one day when I come across a spiritual enemy, I can pull those things out and like throw them at them because somehow I'd be able to have the right stuff in my, in my tool belt or in my reservoir to be able to fight the wicked one. There's some validity to this too. I think it's good to have these things rolling through us, but can I just maybe change your paradigm for a moment? If you take meditating on God's word seriously, you are going to realize that you want to mem- meditate on that passage that you read this morning, but you're like, did he say God the Father or God the Son? I can't remember. All of a sudden, there's a reason to memorize. And as we memorize the text, now we have fodder to meditate on. Instead of wondering what that verse was about, we know it. 
We've got a sentence or maybe two sentences that we chew on and chew on and chew on. Some of you have read uh, Gentle and Lonely, <laughs> Gentle and Lonely, Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. <laughs> Christ was lonely at times too, I know. Um, man, Gentle and Lowly is a book that Dane Ortland uh, wrote based on some Puritans' thoughts about one verse. I mean, some of these Puritans would take one verse and they would think and meditate and meditate and meditate and meditate all over and over and over again, chewing these things. I mean, these guys knew how to cook, you know? They really cooked up a good meal. And we are still actually enjoying the benefits of some of their meditations on Scripture. I would encourage you as well then to take time to memorize. Maybe it's one or two verses in a week that you're going to take time that you are going to meditate on those things. This is very practical stuff. I realize it, guys. But only if we start to take this seriously will we say, I want to do that. And if behind that we can understand the true motivation is not so we check the box or that we can tell our, our accountability group that, I, that I, was able to, I was able to do my two verses, but rather that we might know God. Now we're getting somewhere. Now we are glorifying, honoring God, knowing Him. We're being changed by this word. We're worshiping rightly. There's great value in memorizing large sections of Scripture, and I, I, I would encourage you to do that as well. But if it's hard for you, start with one or two verses that you will mull over, over and over again throughout the week. It's a good way for us to be delighting in God's word and meditating on it day and night. What a value when it comes to knowing God this is. There have been several times where I've used one or two statements in my own life when I was either uh, sinful or when I was afraid. And the response was simple only because I knew the memory verse and was able to say, you are my refuge. I have nothing good apart from you, Lord. I need to find myself in you. Those are only there because words have taken that time to make sure I can get that little phrase. It's not even long, but man, is it powerful. I encourage us to memorize the Bible. God continues to speak to his people, but as he does so in Jesus, Christ, in Jesus Christ, things become more and more distinct and clear and wonderful, better than we could have ever imagined from the promises that we received at the beginning of the Bible. Remember that trustingly taking in the Bible then is the main channel of grace wherein you come to know Jesus Christ, and therefore it is a primary way in which we glorify God and enjoy him forever. So, they call us not to slavishly memorize or check off our boxes in a reading plan. I would call us to read, meditate, and memorize so that we might know God. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your great grace in Jesus Christ. He is the reason that we proclaim Christ today in our gathering. Christ has risen. We praise you and thank you for your love that you have shown us yourself and your son. I ask, Father, that our lives would be to the aim of knowing you. May we not just get through, may we not do it for some sort of ritual or magic ceremony. Lord, may we know you. Thank you for giving us your word. May you be praised in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you're not a part of a gospel-centered church in your city, we encourage you to find and belong to one. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.org.
www.thepowerofthenews.com.